seeing 25 to 30 young people on a Wednesday lunchtime coming to a club, uh, a group that he's running at lunchtime. Isn't that phenomenal? It's just fantastic. Um, and so he's then working one-on-one -on -one throughout the day with them. And so God's stirring something with young people in this town. And uh, Jess and Phil are uh, involved in that on a Wednesday night leading the, the youth group. And we're just, just, can you just during these 40 days of prayer, can you just pray over that? Um, just pray over what God's doing through the youth because he's stirring something. And it's so exciting to see. So yes, we are, um, we're nearly halfway through our 40 days of prayer. I was expecting a bit more enthusiasm than that. I mean, I know we had a long day yesterday, but I'm going to preach until I wake you up. Is that okay? Good. A few of you are waking up. Um, and so yeah, on Friday, I think we'll be 20 days in. So if you, you kind of missed it, then my question is, where have you been? But um, there's the prayer guides on the Connect Point over there. You can grab it. Don't feel like you've missed out. Uh, you can either catch up or just join in where we're at and be praying. Um, and we've got prayer meetings on a Tuesday evening. Can I just ask, just if you, if you were thinking of not coming to any, just come to one of them. Just, just do something a little bit different that you've not done before. Uh, come to one of our prayer meetings. Maybe you, you, you're not someone who sort of, you struggle in prayer like many of us do. Just, just pray a little bit more. Uh, just, just in some opportunity, just speak to God about something. We're looking at that today. Just speak to God about something. I'm not too sure he's that bothered about the requests because he just wants us to have a relationship with him and speak to him. So we can bring all things to him. We'll unpack that a bit this morning. Um, but, Maybe you can come on one of the Tuesdays as we gather corporately and pray. Uh, it's really exciting to see. I want to encourage you this week, uh, the three friends we're praying for, maybe allow your prayers to become action this week. Maybe just connect with one, two, maybe even all three if you're feeling really holy. Just connect with them on Facebook or give them a text or uh, invite them out for a drink or something. I, I just felt prompted this week just to connect with one of them. I haven't spoken to her for a while and we're going to plan up to play some basketball and meet up together. So I just encourage you, just make, make your prayers into action this week and, and connect with uh, one or more of those three people that we're praying with. And I'm just so encouraged that as we, um, as we pray over these issues as for 40 days, we're praying for a new wave of revival in our town, in our nation. We're praying for our three friends. And we're all admitting that we've got issues in our life. Can we all agree on that? That's good to know. Because <laughs> that would have been a very lonely moment as I stood there and said, we've all got issues in our life. No, we haven't. Uh, so we're praying over the big issues in our life. Uh, and the stuff that just gets in the way of God. And so uh, to run alongside this, we've, we're doing Freedom in Christ, and, and Sue just led that fantastically on Thursday. So pray over those that are taking part. I think we've got about 13 taking part in Freedom in Christ. 15. 15 doing Freedom in Christ, which is great uh, as we journey through that material. So it's really exciting what God's doing. Um, and uh, last week I started preaching around the theme of prayer, and I'm going to carry that on for these next few weeks as we continue the 40 days of prayer. And I had a bit of an obsession with the letter P last week, for those that remember. Can you remember? Well, guess what letter we're on this week? P. <laughs> this is like Groundhog Day of Sesame Street. We're just going to keep repeating prayer, uh, the P word. And so um, this week, last week, I, I looked at the power of prayer. And remember, I said that the power of prayer depends on the power of God. It depends on the prayers that are prayed. And it depends on passionate patience. Well, I haven't got any points this week, but we have got a P. Right, so I'm going to preach around the title, The Posture of Prayer. The Posture of Prayer. And so if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Mark 10. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's one of the ten Gospels. And we just hear this amazing encounter. Two encounters, actually, that I just want us to explore very briefly this morning, just in the few moments that we have together. These two encounters. And the first is with two brothers called James and John. 
I think they were called the were they the sons of sun uh, the sons of thunder. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's a title, isn't it? The thun the can't say it. The sons of thunder. The sons of thunder. I mean, that says something about them, doesn't it? The sons of thunder. And I wonder if that's I don't know, but they they were the sons of Zebedee. It says in this passage, so they're obviously a bouncy pair. Uh, that's a joke for those that remember the magic roundabout. Magic roundabout fans in the house this morning. But Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem, and he's on a journey. And he's journeying from the north in Galilee and he's moving down into Jerusalem. And he knows what awaits him when he gets to Jerusalem. Two times he has told the disciples, this is what's going to await me when I get to Jerusalem. With every step that he takes towards Jerusalem, he knows the pain. He knows the agony. He knows the cross awaits him in Jerusalem. And so the third time he tells his disciples in uh, verse 33, this is the third time that he says to them, look, this is what this is all about. And he says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man. He was talking about himself there. The Son of Man. And yeah, that means he was the Son of God and he's the Son of Man. But it's also a prophetic statement from a book called Daniel in the Old Testament. Where Daniel was prophesying, speaking into things to come. And I think in chapter 7 of Daniel, uh, he, he brings this description of the coming Messiah. And he says, there before me was one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he's saying, that's me. This is who I am. So if anyone ever tells you Jesus never said he was the Son of God, I'm afraid he did. See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and after three days he will rise again. That's the third time he's told the disciples what's going to happen in Jerusalem. And just as he finishes describing what's going to happen, James and John, God bless them, turn up to Jesus and they say in verse 35, let me just read these few verses together. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came springing up to, Je- no, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one on your right and one on your left, in glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized in the baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able And Jesus said to them, take the cup that I drink, sorry, the cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right or on my right hand side or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to them and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whomever would be great among you must be your servant. And whomever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Father God, we thank you that, as we remembered yesterday, you so loved this world that you gave. That through your generosity, you gave one who came not to be served, but to serve. And Lord, just in these few moments... Lord, I just ask that your spirit would be here amongst us and just stir our hearts that we would be more like you, that we would live, love, and look like you more and more each day. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Sometimes I think we can overcomplicate prayer. Maybe that's just me, but we make it something that it's not. See, prayer is simply a conversation. 
Prayer is about the deepening of a relationship. Prayer is about moments of encounter. That's what prayer is. Which is why I read verses like this where people are encountering Jesus and I can't help but think, how does that relate to my prayer life? What does that look like in my prayer? And I just think, with James and John, there's such an honesty as they approach Jesus. I like James and John. I like them. I like their boldness. Because Jesus has been sharing what's about to happen to him in Jerusalem. The pain, the agony, and the torment. And James and John, like the subtlety of a sledgehammer to your head, come in and say, oh, We've got, a, we've got something we'd like to ask of you. So I can imagine James and John have been stood there and they've, been, they've obviously been talking this through. I think, I, I think there's suggestions to say the whole of the disciples have been saying, you know, we've been promised these thrones in glory. I wonder, what, I mean, who's going to get like the one next to Jesus? It's, it's like, if I can get that one, that shows I'm really important. And so James and John are there and they're, they're saying, well, he's talking about something. I don't know what he's going on about. Something about dying and raising again. But there's going to be a moment where we can step in and we can ask the question. It's like, now, step in, go. Oh, and what, basically what they ask of Jesus is, I mean, if you ever played the game Shotgun, does that, does that mean anything to you? Like, yeah, passenger seat thing. So uh, as um, my sister and I, we used to play this game called Shotgun that you used to fight over who would get the front seat. So if mum or dad were taking us out in the car uh, and it was just one of them and there was a spare front seat, it was Shotgun, I've got the front seat because you always felt more important sitting on the front seat, didn't you? Maybe that's just me. Um, and so we used to play and you have rules, so you had to have the car in sight, but the other person would always try and come up with the excuses to know that you're disqualified, I get the, and I would always end up in the back seat because I was the youngest, and so I never got the front seat. But essentially, that's what's happening here. So just imagine you're having a heart attack, okay? Not a nice thing to imagine, but just imagine it for a brief moment. You know I need to get myself to hospital. So you run out to the car, and the two people with you run out to try and help you get to hospital, and one of them says, shotgun, I got the front seat. I've, my, no, it's my seat. No, it's nice. My seat. I'm the oldest. You get in the... And you're dying of a heart attack. And the people around you are saying, shotgun, I want the front seat. I mean, how much have they missed the point? So the disciples are arguing about who are going to get the place of glory when Jesus is revealing what is going to happen to him. That's exactly what's happening here. Can we ride shotgun? When you die and rise again. When we're in heaven or seated together, can we have one seat either side of you? And personally, I can relate to James and John. Just being honest. I can relate to James and John because in verse 35, they come to Jesus and say, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. We want you to do whatever we ask of you. And I wonder just how many times in prayer we approach Jesus like that. Just want you to do whatever I ask of you. Sometimes we treat him like a little genie in a bottle, don't we? Maybe it's just me. I'm going to talk from my point of view for a while. I can approach Jesus like a genie in a bottle. Like, I've got all these needs and all these wants. Jesus, will you just do this for me and do that for me? And then life will be really, really good and everyone will be happy. I've suddenly got into Disney. I've got a young daughter. I've watched more Disney films in the last two years than I have done in my whole life. I start singing Disney songs in the shower. And uh, it's a whole new world. <laughs> it's one of my favorites. And uh, in the film Aladdin, there's a genie. 
uh, played by the phenomenally amazing Robin Williams. And there's this song that he sings to Aladdin, and these are the words. It says, Master, I don't think you quite realize what you've got here, so why don't you just ruminate while I illuminate the possibilities? I love rhymes. Well, Alibaba had them 40 thieves. I have no idea who this is, but if I pronounce, that's the guy, had a thousand tails. Girl, it's a girl. Oh, that girl had a thousand tails. There it is. If you want to know the story of Shahazadudu, then um, <laughs> Devon knows the story. But masters, you're in luck. I just, I'm not going to go down that way. Because <laughs> up your sleeves, you've got a brand of magic that never fails. You've got some power in your corner now, some heavy ammunition in your camp. You've got some punch, pizzazz, yahoo and how. See, all you've got to do is rub that lamp. And I just wonder if we can think, wow, look at the power I've got in my corner right now. God's promised that whatever you ask of him, I'll do. God promised that if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to that mountain, no matter what that mountain is, you be moved and it will be moved. And so I can see James and John coming to Jesus and they're saying, do for us whatever we ask. And I'm like, fair enough. Fair play. Jesus says, you ask and it'll be. We read these words that Jesus says to them. I will do whatever you ask. What do you want me to do for you? Do you see, I said just before I started, I don't think Jesus is too bothered about the requests we bring before him. As, ha- as, as, as naive, as, as selfish, as, as me-focused as those disciples' requests were, Jesus knew what they were. He knows the words we say before we say them. And so the disciples are coming and say, will you do for us whatever we ask? Jesus is like, I know what's coming. I know. And he doesn't, rebuke them. He doesn't condemn them. He says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? See, I don't think the issue is in our requests. I think the issue is in our lack of requests. I think God can cope with the requests we bring that are so selfish, so naive that we do not understand what we're asking. I think the very fact is that we just bring our requests to God. Just pray about, Paul says in Philippians 4, doesn't he? Bring all your requests to God. Whether they're self-centered, whether they are right, wrong, the good, the bad, the ugly. Just bring it before God because it's better than bringing it to something else. It's better than saying, I can solve this all on my own. So uh, God, I don't really need you. Thanks very much. I'll get this sorted. Now bring all of your requests to God. Some of us can get so preoccupied going, I'm not sure this is holy enough to bring before God. And so I'm just not going to bring it. I'm not gonna, it, just, it reveals something ugly within me. Maybe God says, no, actually, I want you to bring that because when we bring it, he starts doing a work in our lives. He starts doing something within us because we're bold enough to say, this is ugly, God, but this is where I am. Will you do whatever I ask of you? Just do it, God, like a genie in a bottle. The issue is then what they asked for. You see, church, the words of our prayer reveals the posture of our heart. The words of our prayers reveal the posture of our heart. And these disciples expose something of where their heart is at. See, the outward reflects the inward, doesn't it? The overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The outward pronouncement of our words reveals the inward posture of our heart. James and John approach Jesus with the words of personal gain, and it's exposing their heart. But Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He accepts their requests. I just wonder how many of us approach Jesus with, Jesus, we've been serving you in ministry for three years. Will you do something for me now? It's got to be a trade-off, isn't there? It's like I'm giving Jesus everything. Come on, a bit of trade-off. 
God, I promise I'll do anything if, if you just give me an A on that test. I'll do anything for you. God, I've surrendered my life to you. All I need, I just need that job. I want that job. God, I, I've been sacrificing everything. I've been at church every week for six weeks. Hope you've noticed. But I still haven't got a girlfriend. Prayers we pray. The trade-off that we want. We'll give it all, but it comes with a condition. We pray for his will to be done as long as it lines up with my will. Thank you, Lord. So good. So good, God. Because so often, our shortcomings as humans is that we want a shortcut, don't we? We want to get where we want to be the quickest way possible. And so we approach Jesus with what we can get from him. We approach him because we want a fulfilled life. We want a happy life. We want the blessed, blessed life. We want the easier job. We want the grander position. And for some, God is like a genie in a bottle for getting that shortcut. But Jesus says to them, you do not know what you're asking. I think there's four ways that God answers prayer. We might know three of them. You may have heard people preach on the third. I want to be bold enough to say I think there's a fourth so there's yes, no, and wait. We've seen that. You've seen it maybe heard it preached like a traffic light, you know, red, yellow, uh, red, amber, uh, green. And so God sometimes will say yes. And that's when God is just like, yes, we love you, God. Thank you. God is good all the time. But then sometimes he says no. And that's when we have to remind ourselves that all the time God is good. And then sometimes he'll say wait. He'll say yellow light. Just you don't understand right now. Just, just press the pause button. Just wait. But then the fourth and I think the fourth is exposed here when he says to James and John, you do not know what you are asking. Sometimes we pray and we're praying in all honesty and we're praying with all boldness and God's going, you have no idea what you're asking. You have no idea the prayer that you are praying. Church, the posture of our prayers needs to be one that admits our limitations. That when we come to God, we do not have all of the answers. We do not understand everything. Even when we're praying for something and we're saying, I get all of this, I've got it sorted. God, I'm bringing you this and I'm pleading for this because this has to happen. And God's going, you have no idea what you're praying. Come to me, pray to me. But trust me with how I respond. See, the very act of prayer is humbling. As we offer our circumstances, our relationships, our wants, our needs, our desires to God, by doing so, we have to admit we need his help. So as we offer those prayers, trust him enough with his response. If we're willing to admit we need God, we need to be willing to admit how he responds is what's best. For James and John, they had no idea of the cost of what they were asking. And Jesus goes on and he talks these strange metaphors about a cup and baptism. Basically, in, in, in the biblical narrative, this concept of a cup is, it either represents joy or sorrow, joy or suffering, joy or pain. And he's saying in this context, are you willing for your cup to be filled with the suffering that I have to go through? And the baptism, the word actually is submerge. So are you willing to be submerged, fully submerged in the suffering that I have to go through? What you're, you have no idea what you're asking. If I was to say yes to that, and they're like, yeah, we can, we're, we're all good, we've got it sorted, yep, got that fine. Oh, you do not know what you are praying. See, Jesus was crucified with a thief on his right and a thief on his left. 
Yet James didn't want those two crosses. They wanted the crowns that were to his right and his left. They wanted recognition, not crucifixion. Church, our moments in prayer are moments to allow the Spirit of God to readjust our posture. That's how we can approach God. That's the posture of prayer. Say, God, I don't get all of this. I'm even willing to admit that my prayers are skew with, but I'm bringing them to you. My demands are way off, but I'm bringing them to you. And then we trust him with the response. So that's the posture that God can use. But it's not the posture the world looks at. The posture the world looks at is the Alan Sugar apprentice, I'm the best kind of approach. Got it all sorted. But you can't approach God like that. You can't approach God. In all areas of our life, we need to acknowledge cry out for help. And I think that's how prayer life develops. In my own life, that's how my prayer life has developed. As I've been stood going, God, I need you. I think I've got this thing sorted out and that's a clue enough in itself that I need you. And suddenly I start going, oh, that area of my life needs you. Uh, (laughs) Wow, that area really does. And then I start looking at the needs of the people around me that are closest to me. And I'm like, God, they need you. I'm going to cry out to help. And then the people that I struggle with Wow, they really need you. The fact that I struggle with them must mean they, they really need you, God. Oh, no, it's me you want to change something. That's interesting. And then the people that we dislike, can't say hate in church, can I? We don't hate anybody, but the people we really, really, really struggle with, that we just like, we see them across the street, we're like, oh, something really interesting in that shop window right there. Those kind of people. Suddenly our prayers go, oh, I need to pray for them. And our prayer life starts extending because we realize that prayer grows through the surrendered life. Prayer grows. That's the posture of prayer. Jesus says it like this in verse 43. He says, but whomever would be great among you must be servant of all. And whomever be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That is the prayer, the posture of the praying heart is the, prayer, is the posture that is praying for all, serving all. Do you know how Jesus is serving humanity in this moment? Do you know what he's doing right now? He's praying for you. He's interceding for you. Romans 8.35 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. He's at the right hand of the Father, interceding. That's the language of prayer. It's the language of representing, of standing in the gap, of petitioning. It's what Jesus is doing for his people right now. And I just wonder, because my brain works a bit like this, what's he saying? What's he, what's he praying right now? If Jesus is interceding, what's he interceding about? Well, I think there's a clue. I think there's a clue that we can look at. There's a moment when Jesus is speaking to Peter and he says to him, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter's like, no, I'm not. I'd never do that. And then we know the story. Do you know him? No, I don't. No, I don't. No, I don't. cock a doodle We know the story. That's what happens. And Jesus tells him that's what's going to happen. But in the moment when he's telling him, in verse 32 of Luke 22, Jesus says, but I have prayed. So he's telling Peter, you are going to deny me. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. 
Jesus prayed for Peter that he's, I mean, whose prayers would you like? If, if I want somebody to pray for me, who do I, I, Jesus praying for Peter that his faith would not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I have prayed that your faith may not fail. I just wonder if Jesus right now sat at the right hand of the Father in glory, is interceding and praying for each one of us. Oh, let their faith be strong. Let them stay the course. Oh, I'm praying. I'm interceding. I'm standing in the gap because everything's against them. The, the odds are stacked against them. They've got the world, the devil, the flesh. It's all stacked against them. But I am praying and interceding for them that they would keep the faith. That encourages me. That encourages me. The one that overcame death, defeated Satan, is sat at the right hand of the Father, interceding and praying faith over each one of us. Church, I just wonder, can we be no more like Jesus than when we intercede for the sake of our faith? Have you ever prayed for your own faith? Oh, God, I just, I can't be bothered right now. Help me keep the faith. Do you pray for each other? Just look around the room. Have you stopped in a moment in your days and just gone, Lord, I pray for all of the people at OCC that they would keep the faith. That no matter what happens in circumstances and situations, let their faith be strong. Church, I want to encourage you. Start to pray for my faith, for each other's faith. I don't think we can be any more like Jesus than when we're praying and serving each other in that way than when we choose to pray for each other. Don't seek to be served by God all the moments of your days. Instead, seek to serve. Pray for each other. Pray for yourself. Oh, that our faith would be strong. The serving heart is the praying heart. I said we were going to look at two encounters, and they are like polar opposites, these two encounters. So we've got James and John, the sons of Zebedee, demanding of Jesus, give us whatever we ask. And Jesus says, what can I do for you? And then the very next verses sees Jesus carry on on this journey. Don't forget, he's on a journey. He's journeying towards Jerusalem. And he goes to this place called Jericho. Jericho is a really significant city in the biblical narrative. It's, it's that city of, uh, uh, that, that Zacchaeus is up in the tree. Zacchaeus was, uh, we, we were talking about Zacchaeus this week, weren't we? To see what he could see, see, see. That's a different song. And all that he could see, see, see was the dot from the deep blue see, see. No, that's a completely different. But he was a wee little man that climbed up a tree to see what he could see, see, see. And uh, I'm, I'm tired, guys. I'm tired. Just admitting it. I finished the talk off last night just because of sheer time. And I'm tired. So can you just encourage me? Because I'm, I'm talking about Zacchaeus being a little man seeing at the bottom of the sea. I'm going to go home and cry <laughs> and cringe and never listen to the recording of this sermon. <laughs> get ordained this year. It'll get better. Trust you. And Jesus has uh, healed. Th- he heals three blind people in, in, in Jericho. And this is the account of one of the three blind people that he heals in Jericho. It says, when they came to Jericho, that's Jesus and the disciples, and they were leaving, uh, and he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, a great crowd um, but, sorry, with a great crowd. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry to him and said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called him. 
And the blind, they called the blind man, saying, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, Go on your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. What an amazing encounter. We have this blind man sat beside a roadside. And he's crying out to Jesus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd tell him to stop making a racket. And this is like a red rag to a bull for a blind man who's heard rumors that this Jesus, son of David, can heal blind people. He's done it twice before in this city. Why not me? And so he cries all the more. And Jesus hears this blind man's plea. And he says, call him to me. And he takes off his cloak. Wow. Takes off the identity that he's been known for for years, the shame that covers him. He's willing to leave that behind in the approach of Jesus. He says, I'm leaving everything. I'm going to pursue Jesus. His identity shifts. And Jesus, look in 50, verse 51. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Do you recognize those words? Those words sound familiar. What do you want me to do for you? They're exactly the same words that he has just said to James and John. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do? I want to be stood next to James and John in this moment. That's, if I was to put myself in this story, that's where I want to be this, in that moment. Because James and John are like, oh, I've heard those words before. Because they approach Jesus. We'd like you to do for whatever we ask of you. What do you want me to do for you? And they're like, I wonder if that's code for Jesus saying no. Maybe when he says, what do you want me to do for you? He's just leading them on a bit and he's going to say, no, sorry, not today. But here with Bartimaeus, he comes and Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? The disciples have said, we want a place of honor to your left and to your right. Bartimaeus says, teacher, rabbi, I want to recover my sight. What opposing responses we see from, Jesus's, uh, from Jesus saying, what do you want me to do for you? See, for the disciples, they wanted to be someone. But for Bartimaeus, he wanted to see someone. Two opposing postures. For the disciples, they thought they could see. They thought they were the ones who had it all sorted. So their prayer was the need, the goal, the position. And so they pursued that. They positioned for that. They petitioned for that. But they missed the point. Bartimaeus, he knew he couldn't see a thing. And so he invited Jesus into his whole world into his moment right there church who are the really blind ones see we can approach jesus all the days of our life and we could have been a praying disciple for years but we are blind as a bat i learned so much from you christians just bringing all their requests to jesus just everything god i've got a little twinge in my little toe i just and, and i i'm like twinging my little toe it's probably just like i don't know stub my toe or something but they're bringing everything to god desperate for him to move in their life. And here Bartimaeus, I admit where I am and I need to see. Don't forget that Jesus is on a journey. He's moving from Galilee through Jericho to Jerusalem. And I just wonder, in these two chapters, from the sort of tail end of chapter 8 of Mark through to chapter 10, there's accented moments in this that reveal who Christ is and reveal the cost of following him. And I just wonder if these moments speak into our situations. 
speaking to our moments about what it is to follow Jesus. These two encounters, both similar in that they involve requests of Jesus by followers or certainly people that believe who Jesus was, acknowledging who he was, but the response is so different. I just wonder if this journey represents something of where we are. That actually our approach of Jesus isn't the problem. The requests aren't so much a problem. But believing Jesus for the response and saying, Jesus, you need to shift my prayers from who I want to be to seeing you. And then when we get that posture in our prayers, suddenly the request shifts and it's no longer, I want that place of glory. I want that place of honor. It's, I just want to see you more. I just want to see more of you. Church, the choice we have is whether we want to be or whether we want to see. See, when our prayers are so preoccupied with who we want to be, we become preoccupied with the outcome. God, this is what I want. This is the, I need to know your plan for my life. God, I want to be this kind of person. I want to get to sit on your left and your right. Yet when our prayers are consumed with seeing Jesus, it's more about the here and now. God, no matter what happens today, can I, I be a little bit more like you? Can I be more consumed with you? Crying out in a moment, Jesus, son of David, I want to see. When our prayers are preoccupied with being, we feel like we've got something to prove. You have no idea what you're asking. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. And we know exactly what we're asking because we've got this all sorted. But when we want to be, when we want to see, sorry, we know that we've got nothing we can prove. I see who I really am. And I'm going to cry out all the more loudly. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. To be means our prayers are preoccupied with getting rather than giving. I think all of those 12 disciples wanted to ask Jesus that question. Because when James and John went back to them, uh, to, the, to the other remaining nine, they all had an argument. And Jesus said they were indignant and they're bickering. And Jesus has to calm them down. See, to be means we are preoccupied with getting rather than giving. I want this, I need this. But to see means we're re- willing to give everything to God. Bartimaeus' sight is recovered We see in verse 52, I think this is fascinating. In verse 52, Jesus heals Bartimaeus and says, go on your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight. But where does he go? And he followed him on the way. Go on your own way. I'll heal you, but you go on your... No, 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 no. Because I just sinned something in this encounter. When we get our posture right in prayer, something starts to shift. Oh, I'm not going to go anywhere away from him. And suddenly our prayers start to change. And our prayers start to align up with the will of God. Because it's like, you know what? I don't want to be on any other journey than the journey he's on. And so I'm just going to pray, God, this is what I'd like. This is my request. Bring all my... But you know what? I want your will above everything else. And suddenly our will aligns with his will. And things like mountains start to be moved into the sea. And there's power in our prayer because our posture is right before God. Go your own way. No, I think I'll carry on following you. I think I'm going to keep on this journey because I've seen something. I don't want to be something anymore. I want to see something more of you. Church, I want to encourage us in this 40 days of prayer 
Start asking to see God. Start asking to see God. Oh, Jesus, son of mercy. I want to see. I want to see you move. I want to see you do something. I want to see who you are. I want to see you in a fresh way. Now my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen. Can I tell you something about the paradox of prayer? In the paradox of prayer, we close our eyes. But it's in the place of prayer that our eyes are really opened to what God can do, to who God is and who we are. And our posture has to shift from God, I want this, I need this, I've got to have this, to God, I just want to see you, who you are, what you can do. Church, I'm finishing here. I hope something of what's been said this morning is, is God speaking into your heart. It was just one sentence or one phrase. But I want to pray for you. So let's just close our eyes. Paradox of prayer. We close our eyes, but God opens them to his power, his glory, his majesty. I just wonder... As I was writing this, I just felt for some, maybe you're in that place where you need to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I'm trying to be something. I'm trying to be someone. I need to see someone. I need to see you. Maybe you've been journeying with Jesus for a while, but you've stopped seeing him. In the pursuit of being someone, you've stopped seeing someone. So whether for the first time you're coming to him and saying, Jesus, I want to see you. I need to surrender my life to you. Jesus, son of, son, of, son of David, have mercy on me. Or maybe your pursuit has been one that's been a bit skew-whiff for a little while. You need to come back to him. I'm going to do something really simple. I'm just going to count to three. And if that's where you're at, you need to raise your hand. Just raise your hand knowing that he accepts you as you are. I mean, the disciples said to him, will you just do for us whatever we ask? And they were the ones that were closest to him. His grace is here in this moment to accept you as you are, but to not leave you as you are. So if you need to come to him for the first time this morning, if you need to come back to him, I encourage you right now, raise your hand when I get to three. One, God loves you. Two, his grace is in this moment. Three, raise your hand. Amen. Amen. Amen, Lord, I thank you that these hands are raised and these hands represent a life that is saying right now, God, I want to see you. I admit in this moment that I have not got it all sorted, that I make mistakes. Lord, I thank you that we can confess and you say that you remove those sins as far as the east is from the west. Lord, I thank you that the shame that we carry, the guilt that we carry can be broken now in Jesus' name because you have paid the price. So Jesus, son of David, have mercy right now and pour it out in an abundance on those whose hands are raised, those whose hearts are leaning into you right now. Lord, I pray in this moment they would see something of your love for them. They would see you in a way they've not seen before. I just, just get a sense that 
There's some that just need to know that the silence of God doesn't mean the absence of God. You cry out in prayer and you hear nothing. You sense nothing. Scripture does say that God will be silent sometimes. But it doesn't mean he's left you. In fact, Scripture says he will never leave nor forsake you, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He is there, his comfort, his rod, his staff. God is with you. God may not be airlifting you out of all the problems that you have, but can I tell you, he's going to parachute in. So I want to ask you right now, as every eye is closed, this is a moment of privacy. If, you, if, you're, if you're struggling in prayer right now and you feel like God has shut up heaven and there's just silence, be willing to admit your limitations. Be willing to admit that you get it wrong. Maybe just put your hands out in front of you in a, in a place of surrender. Just sense God wants to do something right now in this moment. God is able. God, I thank you that your silence is not representative of your absence. That it's not even punishment for selfish requests. I thank you that even though the disciples came to you with some of the most selfish requests you could imagine, as you're detailing your death, they ask for seats of glory. You respond. You're not silent. You respond. Lord, you take us as you, as you find us. So right now, Lord, I just pray ears would hear the whisper of heaven. Lord, I pray right now your spirit would just fall and draw near to us. Open our eyes to the areas of our life where you need to just do some work. But I pray you'd start to speak. Lord, as these hands are out, they're out representing hearts that are hungry. Hearts that want more. Hearts that want to hear your voice. So make yourself known. Make your presence felt. As they cry out all the more loudly this morning with a posture that says, come Holy Spirit. Lord, I thank you that you stopped for the one man that cried out. The one that society had labeled and rejected. Blind Bartimaeus, you stopped. So right now with these people here that are crying out to you, will you stop and respond to each one of these people? Each one of these lives, will you respond right now? Call them over. Call them out. Call them closer. Holy Spirit, will you come? Speak your words.